this week on the Backtable Podcast. You know, what we're told, the practices that we're told to follow in our lives, you know, day to day outside of work really apply at work as well, which is, you know, we should do everything to reduce, reuse, and recycle. So we can reduce the energy that we're using by turning off equipment and lighting and computers when they're not in use. Really looking at the big picture, look, energy use is by far the biggest contributor, the biggest source of uh, greenhouse gas emissions from our practice. And given that, anything that we can do to decrease the amount of greenhouse gases associated with energy use is a value. And, and that means, you know, advocating, I'm not going to get too political here, but advocating for sourcing of electricity from more renewable and sustainable sources than fossil fuels, especially coal. Right. I think that's probably the, the biggest thing that we can do. And since this does have major, you know, climate change has major public health implications, we as physicians, I think, have a special responsibility to raise awareness about that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Hey, everybody, really exciting news. Our listeners asked and we have answered. We now have CME available. You can get AMA Category 1 CME for listening to Backtable and then filling out a reflection. You can find the CME links on episode pages at backtable.com, or you can also find the CME links in the show notes. It's a small cost for the credit, much less than you would spend at a conference, and it helps support the show. Powered by CMEFI, using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. You can do this in just a few minutes. If you're already listening to Backtable, might as well get a CME credit for it. Again, guys, this helps support the show and allows us to keep bringing you great content. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. This is Aaron Fritz as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce my special guest, Dr. Jonathan Gross. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Sure. Thanks for coming. Um, we came across your paper in GVR of June 2021. For those following along, you can grab it online. It's the Environmental Impact of Interventional Radiology and Evaluation of Greenhouse Gas Emissions from an Academic Interventional Radiology Practice. And so we're going to, we have Jonathan on to kind of cover the topic a little bit, tell us about his results. But first, Jonathan, I just want you to give our audience a little bit of introduction about yourself where you're at, where you trained, maybe tell us a little bit about the, the training program at NYU. So uh, I am from New York. I was raised here. I trained here. Uh, my first uh, job out of training uh, was in New York uh, at, at Montefiore, which is a great experience for two years. And for the past 10 years, I've been at, uh, at NYU, which has been a great experience for me, number one, because I have fantastic colleagues, uh, number two, because I get to work with great trainees, and, and number three, because I, I have had the opportunity to collaborate with faculty in other schools in the university. Um, and that's led to some really interesting research projects, including the one that we're gonna be discussing today. In terms of our, our training program, it's a, it's a fantastic training program, I think. We cover multiple hospitals, which as an attending can be kind of a pain, but as a trainee is really fantastic because our trainees get the experience of working at 
our, our main teaching hospital, which is Tisch Hospital. It's a big oncology and transplant center, but they also rotate to uh, Bellevue Hospital, which is uh, New York City's kind of flagship um, municipal hospital. It's a, it's a huge facility, very busy. We cover a VA. Um, we cover two other hospitals, in, including an orthopedic hospital, and we have multiple level one trauma centers. So our trainees, you know, they come in, they're all super smart and they're all super talented to begin with. And then by the time that they leave here, they've seen pretty much everything. And I think they come out feeling very confident and they, they go on to do great things. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, thank you for that. I want to jump into the paper, but first I want, I want you to tell our audience a little bit about what inspired you to pursue this investigation on the environmental impact of interventional radiology. And have, have you always had an interest in environmental sciences, climate change? If you could just uh, tell us what the inspiration was behind the, the study. So, yeah, you know, I've always been interested in the topic. I've always been interested in environmental science and climate change and climate change policy. I'm not really sure where or when it, it began, but I was pretty young and I'm pretty confident that if I hadn't become a physician, I'd probably right now be like an engineer at some university, like working on like cold fusion or some other, right. you know, more sustainable source of, of energy. This is the kind of thing that I feel really passionately about. So this study actually, you know, it, it combines a lot of my interests, both IR and, uh, and uh, environmental policy and science and climate change. And so what inspired this particular study? So, you know, I've wanted to do this study for years because, you know, in my personal life, I'm my work outside, my life outside of work, I'm, I'm pretty conscientious about my use of resources. So I, you know, I drive a hybrid plug-in electric car. I like turn off lights when I'm not in a room. I try to recycle when I can. You know, I, I do all the things that we're supposed to do to try to minimize our, our impact on the environment. But then, you know, I walk into work and as soon as I walk into the IR suite, it's like all out the, the window, right? Like our practices are so wasteful, you know, at the end of a procedure, even a minor procedure, there are like trash bins full of, of waste. Our computers, our imaging equipment, they're, they're often left on even when they're not in use. And uh, our rooms are kept frigid, which means that, uh, you know, air conditioning systems and dehumidifiers and everything are, are just like plugging away 24 seven. Um, and that's very wasteful too. It's a lot of energy. So, you know, there's, there was this kind of discordance, uh, between like my work, my, my practices outside of work and my practices at work. And I really wanted to evaluate what the impact of our practices at work are, um, and whether there are any of our practices that we can change to decrease our impacts on the environment without negatively impacting patient care. Yeah. No, thank you for that. I, what drew me to re, wanting to read this paper was I always had an interest in environmental sciences. I, did, you, did you ever visit uh, the Biosphere 2 Center in Oracle, Arizona? No, I haven't. Oh, it's a cool, it's a cool site. Um, Columbia University owned it at one point, and uh, this is back in the 90s because it originally was an experiment, right, to see if they could right. build uh, something that could exist on another planet. And, um, you know, they, Columbia university had a earth semester program and I did the earth semester program. I was one of the oh, that's cool. se second sessions. Yeah. And, uh, it was, this is in 1997. So it was around the time of Kyoto protocol. And I remember, uh, one of our uh, professors from Columbia, Michael Molitor, he, you know, you're in New York, you may have come across him at one point, but he's, he was big in, in, in environment, environmental law. And, um, just very inspiring work that they were doing, uh, you know, at the Kyoto Protocol around that time, you know, setting those targets 
now where we are today, uh, honestly, it's a bit disappointing, but um, it's just cool to see uh, people like you out there think, still thinking about these things in the healthcare space, because you're right, it's incredibly wasteful. I recognize the trash bins building up as well, but the results, and we'll get to those later, are a little bit more, it's more surprising where we're being wasteful, more so just than just the trash bins filling up, right? How did you think about approaching this study when you when you knew you wanted to address this? Right. So, um, you know, I had I had wanted to do this study for several years, but I really don't have the background in sustainability research to be able to pull it off on my own. So I did a little background research and found that there's been quite a lot of there have been quite a few studies that have looked at um, the environmental impact of different types of surgical procedures things like cataract surgery and hysterectomy and certain types of laparoscopic surgeries. And um, I noticed that one author that was frequently involved in several of these studies is a woman named Cassandra Thiel, Cassie Thiel, who happens to be part of the faculty at NYU's School of Engineering and also in our uh, Department of Population Health at uh, NYU Grossman School of Medicine. She's an engineer by background. She's not an MD, but she, her whole focus, her whole research is focused on evaluating the impact of our practices in medicine. So I approached her. I explained to her what interventional radiology is and why I thought that a study was needed and would be of interest to a lot of people. And she was interested as well. Um, and I'm very thankful for that because our collaboration led to this, led to this study. And I, I learned a lot from her in terms of how we chose to pursue the methodology that we chose, you know, I really followed her lead because she is, uh, she's the expert and she's done this, uh, as I said, in, in the surgical field, uh, many times. So yeah, she, she led on that. Okay. So you guys had something, um, to reference in terms of, you know, determining what data was the most important data to collect and so forth. She kind of came equipped with all that when you guys went to start it out. Yes. Thankfully she did. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, it's like, where do you even begin, you know, but that that's cool. So, so it was modeled largely off like, uh, operating rooms, I guess, in terms of determining the work that they've already done on operating rooms. It sounds like. Yeah, that's correct. It was uh, modeled off of several studies that have been done for surgical procedures. Gotcha. Okay. So I do want you to tell us a little bit about the methods, but for our audience, can you quickly define these terms that were really key to the paper? The first one is volume of greenhouse gases and life cycle assessment. If you want to just talk about those real quick before we dive into the results. Okay. So, so I'll start with life cycle assessment because that's kind of the heart of this study. Sure. So life cycle assessment is a methodology that's very commonly used in sustainability research to evaluate the environmental and or human health impacts of a product or a process over that product or process's entire life cycle from its very, very beginning to its very, very end. And one of the things that you can assess with life, life cycle assessment is the volume of greenhouse gases emitted by a product or a process. The volume of greenhouse gases includes all of the different greenhouse gases that are emitted, not only carbon dioxide, which is the most common, and probably the most important in many cases, but also things like methane and nitrous oxide and in studies that have been done in IR now and also in the OR, anesthetic gases, which are uh, very potent greenhouse gases, very long-lasting greenhouse gases, which is something that even our anesthesiologists 
don't really necessarily know. Okay. Wait, can, can you give us some, you're talking about like nitrous oxide, like what examples of, of those anesthetic gases? So my understanding, it's the, uh, especially the, um, anesthetic gases that, uh, end in, uh, fluorine. So SIVO is a, a potent greenhouse gas. They're not as potent as some others like isofluorine. Okay. Gotcha. Things that, unless we talk to an anesthesiologist, we probably are not even aware of, right? Right. Right. Well, cool. Well, thank you for that. And, and I guess, um, operating times of electrical equipment, single use instruments and supplies, those are self-explanatory, right? For the most part. Yeah, I think so. I mean, single use surgical supplies, we all know we, we go into our IR suite, we do a procedure, we open a ton of stuff, and then we generally throw it away, whether that's like drapes, towels, gowns, scalpels, clamps, balloons, catheters, wires, all of that stuff is meant to be used once and then it's trashed. Yeah. And then you, did you guys also include the sterilization of instruments? I mean, we, it's rare that we, I mean, I guess if you're putting a Mediport in, we use some surgical instruments, but was, was that also included in the study in the, in the week of procedures? No, we actually didn't. In this particular hospital, almost everything uh, is single use. Gotcha. Um, we do have some supplies that are reprocessed, but it was such a small percentage of the supplies that we use at the hospital that it, it wasn't it worth. It wasn't worth. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't worth calculating. Cool. And then the other interesting part, which I didn't even think about that you guys included was the commutes of the staff into and out of the hospital. Um, can yeah. you tell us a little bit about how that was calculated? Yeah. So at the hospital at that time during the study, um, I think we had an average of about 32 people who worked in the IR suite. And that included attending physicians, trainees, medical students, techs, and nurses. And uh, initially we thought about asking each person approximately where they live and how they commute to work. Um, but that became difficult because the crew changed every day. You know, yeah. the attendings rotate, um, nurses, some of them work three days, some four, some five. The techs also have kind of their, you know, very varying schedules. So it just became impossible to really calculate. So what we did instead is we, we made some simplifying assumptions. We assumed that the people working in the IR suite at this hospital lived in the same distribution as the average New Yorker, basically. Um, so the average distribution, residential distribution of a New Yorker. Um, and we got that data from the 2010 census. And then we made another assumption, which is that all of those people commuting from those different areas in New York City and its surrounding uh, suburbs were commuting using the same mix of transportation modes as the average person who commutes to a job in Manhattan. Right. Yeah. And that, that data we got from, uh, from just the city's transit authority. I gotcha. So a combination of subway, cars, probably Ubers, what, whatnot. Yeah. Buses, trains, Buses, whatever. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, cool. Well, let's start, let's jump into the, the results. I was personally a little surprised by the ranking of greatest impact. We probably all take for granted the amount of energy that goes into actually keeping the AC units going, the lights on. And what's more visual to us is like those trash cans filling up. And so I wanted you to tell us, uh, tell the audience what made the most impact down to the least, or you can go in reverse order, whichever you prefer. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I was surprised also, you know, waste is something that we see it's very tangible and it's hard to ignore. And so I think the assumption is that that's the biggest source of impact and it does have a big impact, but compared to some of the other things that we found, it was negligible. 
So the biggest contributor that we found was the energy that was used to power the climate control system and the air exchange system in the IR suites. So that accounted for 50% of the carbon dioxide that was emitted over the course of the entire study. Wow. The second largest source came from the production and transportation of single-use surgical supplies. That accounted for about 40% of the emissions we generated during this study. And everything else was much smaller. So the electricity that was used to power our imaging equipment and our lighting and our workstations, our computers, represented about 4 to 5% of the emissions during the study. The commute of staff represented about 2%. Waste only accounted for like 1.7, 1.8% of the wow. carbon dioxide emitted. Use of linens and laundering of linens accounted for about 1.2%, which is interesting if you think about it. It's almost as much as the waste that we're also focused on. Who's thinking about all of the energy that's used to manufacture and then launder and then ev eventually dispose of the linens that we're using, Yeah. right? And then finally... Only a few of our, so, so this was interesting, um, in the literature from surgery, anesthetic gases play a big role in terms of uh, the emissions of carbon dioxide from, from the OR. But um, in our study, only it was less than 1%. And that's just because most of our patients didn't, didn't get general anesthesia. Right, right. It's very interesting and definitely surprising, but then kind of not when you think about it, because, you know, we all see the tops of the hospitals, all those humongous generators and, and AC units. Uh, and right. you can imagine how much energy those cons uh, the consumption is. What's also interesting is what's being consumed after hours when you're not even doing the procedure. Do you want to touch a little bit on that as well? Yeah. So, so, you know, I mentioned that one of the big surprises to me was just that waste, the greenhouse gas emissions related to the waste that we produce were substantial, but paled in comparison to some of the other sources of greenhouse gas emissions. The second big surprise to me, something I had never really even thought about, was the fact that more than half of the emissions that were generated by powering our climate control system were emitted at night when the IR suite wasn't even occupied. So that accounted for 30% or almost 30% of the total emissions from the entire IR practice during that, during the study period came from powering the climate control system when nobody was even in the IR suite. And that's incredibly wasteful. Yeah. You, you weigh that versus, you know, the waste. And the waste, again, is negligible compared to like just running the ACU all night, basically. Right. That's yeah. absolutely right. Yeah, that's wild. So uh, just to get a little bit into the, the details, I, do, I was curious to know, was there a significant difference in the greenhouse gas emissions based on modality, like CT, I know you look, you guys looked at CT procedures and then fluoro procedures. Can you touch a little bit on that? Right. So we looked at all of the procedures that we performed, uh, some under CT guidance, some under ultrasound guidance, some under fluoro, and then some under a combination of ultrasound and fluoro. We actually didn't specifically compare emissions from procedures performed using different imaging modalities, just because we found we initially had planned to, and then it just became difficult because it, it was, it became difficult because some procedures like, for example, a TIPS procedure, which we would have considered performed under both ultrasound and fluoro, um, is a significantly longer procedure than like a CT guided lung biopsy. And even though CT is known to consume much more energy than, for example, ultrasound or fluoro, we didn't want to 
create something where people got a little bit confused, especially since this was one article that was presenting a lot of information that was new to people. We didn't want to confuse things. And actually, we, we initially submitted the article with, which included a lot more information to the journal Radiology. And I think that the, the feedback that we got was that they were impressed, but didn't really understand what we were doing um, uh, because there was just so much data gotcha. that we were including. So we didn't, we wound up not specifically looking at that, at what you're describing or what you're asking about. Having said that though, you know, there is data from sustainability studies that have been done in diagnostic imaging, which have looked at greenhouse gas emissions from different imaging modalities. And they've all found that MR by far emits the most greenhouse gases, more than CT, which is more than fluoro and ultrasound. And the reason that MR and CT, especially MR, emit, are associated with the emissions of so many greenhouse gases or so much greenhouse gases is that it just takes a tremendous amount of energy right. to run an MR scanner and its associated cooling systems. Yeah. And I think we all kind of could guess that as well. I just was curious and, and that makes total sense. I mean, this is, this article is almost like an intro to, you know, the environmental impact. I imagine you guys, and we'll get to that in a minute. I imagine you guys, it, it created lots of ideas for further studies and, and we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute, but, um, anything else in the results that you wanted to uh, point out to the audience that you found remarkable? I think that one of the things that was interesting about the study, the way that we did it, um, you know, we came out with this number, which was the volume of greenhouse gases and the volume of carbon dioxide equivalents that was generated. And then we used data from the EPA, from an EPA database to kind of translate that into something that we can all relate to because a number is a number and it sounds large, but like really who, who, who knows what, you know, right. I think it was, uh, I don't even remember what the number was like 30,000 kilograms of carbon dioxide or something yeah. like that, whatever yeah. we found. But like when, when we translated that into equivalent emissions from a process that we can all understand and relate to, which is like driving a motor vehicle, then it becomes a little bit more real. Yeah. So, um, I don't want to steal your thunder. If you want to share that, that information, go ahead. Yeah. So what we found was that over the course of the five weekdays that we conducted the study, we produced emissions equivalent to burning 2,640 gallons of gasoline or driving a motor vehicle almost 60,000 miles. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. That's pretty, that's a lot of, that's a lot of carbon. And I actually, I actually a while back, just like did the math, the rough math. And so that's like a five day period extrapolated over the course of a year. That's equivalent to the emissions from driving a car around the earth at the equator, like 76 or 77 times. That's a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide from one hospital practice, one right. IR practice at one hospital. Yeah, it is. It is amazing. The other one, I think the other reference you gave with, had to do with the tree, the trees, right? Right, that information right. In front of you, yeah, yeah. I think it was. Uh, I don't actually have it in front of me, but I think it was that in order to sequester the amount of carbon that we generated during five days, you'd have to plant three hundred and eighty-nine trees and wait ten years before that carbon was sequestered from the atmosphere. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that makes everybody think, "Oh my God, that's like disgusting." What do we do about it? <laughs> Right. Right. How do, what are the next steps? So did you guys have any suggestions on ways to mitigate uh, usage? 
Yeah. So some of, so we did include suggestions in our discussion section, uh, in the article. And uh, some of it comes from common sense and some of it is uh, based uh, uh, in some of the interventions that have been done in ORs and that have been proven to, to reduce emissions. So, you know, what we're told, the practices that we're told to follow in our lives, you know, day to day outside of work really apply at work as well, which is, you know, we should do everything to reduce, reuse and recycle. So we can reduce the energy that we're using by turning off equipment and lighting and computers when they're not in use. And one thing that's been found to be very effective in ORs is installing motion sensors in the rooms to decrease the number of air exchanges and let the temperature and humidity drift within a wider range when the ORs, and in our case, the IR suite, is not in use. We can reduce the use of single-use uh, surgical supplies. One thing that we can do is we can advocate just for more reprocessed equipment, things like, you know, reprocessed gowns, reprocessed surgical hardware, things like what, what you mentioned earlier. And another thing that we can do that I, I've tried to adopt is, first of all, to streamline our, our uh, procedure packs to try to minimize the amount of equipment that's included so that we don't wind up just throwing out a bunch of stuff that we don't wind up using. And then opening equipment only when we need it, rather than having like nurses and techs just opening up a whole bunch of stuff in anticipation that we might need it. And I found that that actually saves me at least quite a bit of waste. And then we can reuse, as I said, the reprocessed uh, equipment, reprocessed gowns. And finally, you know, recycling is pretty, pretty obvious. We, we need to just like be more conscientious about where we send all the packaging and the cardboard and stuff like that. We're not yeah. always very good about that. So. Those are, those are some of the strategies. And I think actually, you know, looking at the big picture, we didn't include this in our, in our article, but really looking at the big picture, look, energy use is by far the biggest contributor, the biggest source of uh, greenhouse gas emissions from our practice. And given that anything that we can do to decrease the amount of greenhouse gases associated with energy use is a value. And, and that means, you know, advocating, I'm not going to get too political here, but advocating for sourcing of electricity from more renewable and sustainable sources than fossil fuels, especially coal. Right. I think that's probably the, the biggest thing that we can do. And since this does have major, you know, climate change has major public health implications. We as physicians, I think, have a special responsibility to raise awareness about that. For sure. So solar and wind, pushing for solar and wind could be, have the greatest impact in the grand scheme of things, even more so than reducing the amount of disposables we use, right? Yeah, that's, think about that's, it. I mean, I mean, I haven't made that calculation exactly, so I don't want to, you know, right, falsely, right. No. but uh, having said that though, I, I do think that's the case. You know, there was a study done, I think it was at the University of Michigan, where they looked at, uh, they did a life cycle assessment of different imaging modalities used to, to image the abdomen. I think it was ultrasound, CT, and MR. And one of the things that they did, which was kind of neat, was they found again that, you know, energy used to power imaging equipment, especially MRs is tremendous and, and contributes uh, a lot to greenhouse gas emissions. But then they did this kind of hypothetical, they did this hypothetical scenario where they positioned their MRs and CTs and ultrasounds in different states. And each state um, sources its electricity from different sources. Mm -hmm. So they, they put the, the MR, for example, in Washington state, which apparently relies a lot on hydroelectric power, which is, you know, not associated with greenhouse gas emissions. Then they compared that to, I think it was Indiana, which at least at the time of the study, um, relied a lot on coal. 
And the amount of emissions from the use of an MR in Indiana is at least hypothetically far, far greater than in Washington, which is getting much of its, uh, its power from renewable sources. So that's kind of, that's kind of intuitive, but it's also now at least somewhat evidence-based. Well, yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. And any other sort of emerging technologies that, you know, separate from what we use as energy sources, but that maybe help track these things. Like for example, your light just went off with a motion, motion sensor, anything yeah. else like that, that's that, that we see in and around the hospital or elsewhere that we can pull to the hospital to help reduce energy usage. You know, that's a good question. I'm definitely not an expert on this. I know that some vendors and manufacturers have been trying to reduce the amount of energy that's used by their imaging equipment um, when the imaging equipment is in the idle state. Yeah. And I think that would be a great contribution to, to decreasing emissions from both diagnostic radiology and inter interventional radiology. Actually, one other thing that can be helpful is um, capturing waste heat because mm -hmm. a lot of our equipment actually puts off a lot of heat. It wastes energy. And if we can capture some of that, basically recycle it and, and reuse it to create more, more electricity, then that could be very helpful as well. And I know that's, that's something that is done in some places, not, not most places, but hopefully in the future will be done more. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of the Tesla capturing the friction as energy, yeah. as you, as you decelerate and break, right? That would be kind of neat. All right. Well, that's pretty much all I've got. Anything, any final thoughts, anything, suggestions for our audience, if they want to learn more, any ideas for uh, further studies that you guys are working on? So in terms of further studies, this project generated a whole lot of ideas for yeah. studies and we were super interested in doing them. And then COVID happened and just kind of blew everything up and made it very difficult to get anything done. So we actually haven't pursued anything yet. Though one of the things that I was, that I've been most interested in is, you know, life cycle assessment can be used not just to evaluate greenhouse gas emissions. It can actually be used to assess impacts on human health due to pollution. And I was interested in, I am interested in using our data to evaluate um, the kinds of pollution that we generated from this one IR practice and seeing what the human health impacts, the hypothetical human health impacts are. So that's, that's one project that's related that I'm still interested in doing and hope we can accomplish soon once, you know, things get a little bit back to normal. Yeah. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed, article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson, and Delaney Aguilar, social media and PR by Anne Dang, and newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.